We're going to look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. <clears throat> Revelation 1 and verse 1. We'll be looking at many other passages. <clears throat> revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray, as your servant John says, only two verses later, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Bless us, Lord, as we read your word, even in this book. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Our topic for this evening is the key to symbolism in the book of Revelation. And this is, I have to confess, um, you won't believe it after you've heard it, but it actually was composed originally as a sermon. But it is um, a very industrial strength sermon. In fact, some would say just as a lecture, it's industrial strength. And what I mean by that is we're going to be looking at Old Testament passages, at Jesus and the Gospels, and then the book of Revelation. Because we cannot understand how symbolism is used in the book of Revelation unless we see how the prophets and Jesus used it. Because in fact, Jesus is communicating symbols from heaven. He's continuing his earthly ministry. He's the prophet par excellence. And so, um, let's, let's launch off. You're going to have to really work hard at following me tonight. Pray for me. Many of us have heard the statement that is almost a proverb, whether in churches, businesses, or homes, we've done it for so long, why change it now? The proverbial saying expresses something like uh, about our human nature, that we just don't like to change. We all know that we get into certain habits, and we don't like to change them. We have a new dog, and uh, been with us a few months, and you know, if we change anything during the uh, routine of the day, that dog doesn't know what to do. Well, we humans are even more uh, uh, used, unused to change. It's uncomfortable to change. If something bad to which we become accustomed, uh, it becomes a habit, it often takes something radical to get our attention. Many of us are parents, and sometimes when our kids don't do the right thing, we, we have to get creative and get radical in uh, various ways to get their attention. Many of us have heard how teenagers, perhaps, uh, uh, young people have gotten caught up in cults and gone to live uh, in these cult communities, and the parents hire these special people to go and kidnap them back and, and, and use various kinds of techniques to shock them back into the reality of, um, of their life. Over the last few years, uh, we, we continue to hear about tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes, terrorist attacks. And when you hear about them, it's one thing, but when you see pictures, it makes a huge difference and it makes a bigger impact on your understanding of what you had heard. The point is that we're people who need something radical to get our attention in order to change. If this is true on the mundane level, how much more true is it on the spiritual level? 
We're people who get accustomed to our sinful habit patterns. Now this evening, what I want to do is I, I, I want to ask what radical actions God takes to get our attention so that we'll see the seriousness of our sin. What are the various radical ways that He does that? The book of Revelation is a good place to see one of the radical ways that he tries to get our attention about our sin and our complacency in sin. How does God communicate to people in this book of Revelation? One popular approach to the book of Revelation is interpret this book literally as much as you can unless you're forced to interpret it symbolically. This view understands most of Revelation's pictures as a depiction of literal realities in the future, especially the events of terrible tribulation. Hundred-pound hailstones, uh, all kinds of things. Prophets in chapter 11 who breathe fire. It's amazing. We'll talk about that passage tomorrow. We're going to focus on Revelation 11. But these are taken literally by some significant scholars as well as many in the church. So, we're going to look at the most programmatic statement in Revelation that talks about how to interpret the book. And it's the one we just read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, is Revelation to be understood primarily in a literal way or in a symbolic way. The Greek word that is used in our passage, and I have a uh, picture I'm going the right way, no? Yeah, that's right. Various English translations, if you look on the screen behind me, I'm looking at the screen behind you. Various English translations render the Greek word pronounced semenon, in Revelation 1.1, as communicated, made known, signified, or made clear. Now, it's that word. Let's read it in our Bibles. I'm reading New American Standard. Uh, some of you, how many have the ESV? I mean, many of you have ESV. Most of you probably have more literal translations. I'm going to read it again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and asamenon. Some translations have communicated, as you can see. They translate asamenon, made known, signified, made clear. Now, if it's translated, as you can see here, if it's translated communicated, or made known, or made clear, then you could fit a symbolic view of the book into that. It's mainly symbols. Or you could say, no, it's mainly literal, because those are very general statements about communication. It doesn't talk about the mode of communication. But one of the translations, signified, is very specific. It means to communicate by symbols. Now, in our postmodern age, if you believe the book is mainly literal, then you're going to go with the other translations that suit your tastes. And if you think it's mainly figurative, well, you're going to say, well, of course it means signified. Is that how we do our word studies? Well, of course not. But 
how, how do we choose here? I'm sure you've read your Bibles and you've seen a marginal reading. Well, this word can mean this and that and so on. Well, here's a case where it can mean a number of different things. How do we know which translation is best? Now, this word semino is the verb form of a word noun pronounced semion. And that word is used of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels. And, for example, you remember when Jesus healed uh, the, the, the lame man in Mark chapter 2. Um, he said that what that healing indicated is that he could forgive sin. So the physical healing was a sign, a symbol. It was literal, it happened, but it was a symbol itself that he could forgive sin. Or indeed in uh, John 6 when he uh, multiplied the bread. That was a s- true historical event, yet it signified that he in fact could nourish people salvifically and spiritually. So how do we know which of these to choose? This is a real, what I'm trying to do a little bit here tonight is teach Bible study methods. How how do you study your Bible? Many of you have noticed this, especially if you have a few translations and you see that that they they differ at times. And here's a beautiful case of it. And my answer to which one is best is this. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that's going to be what I'm going to be doing tonight. If you want to learn one thing from me tonight, it's very simple. It's something you've heard. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. What do I mean in this case? Well, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 is based on Daniel chapter 2. Now, my wife, if she were here tonight... Would be, getting, would be getting uncomfortable because she would probably, she might even scream out, so what difference does that make? That it's based on Daniel too. That's very interesting. I'd rather do something else if you're not going to tell me, so what difference does it make? Well, the difference it makes is this. Those words, if you see the references there in Revelation 1.1, the word revelation, right? That's the beginning. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word God, which God gave to him. The word show, to show what must take place. And that phrase, what must take place. And the word semino, that we're, this is the subject of our conversation. All this occurs in Daniel 2. 28, 29, and 45, especially in one particular version, ancient version. It all occurs there. It's an illusion. What's an illusion? New Testament writers will allude to the Old Testament, and the wording has to be unique, found nowhere else except in that New Testament passage and in the Old Testament passage. And if it's an illusion, then John is referring back to Daniel in its context. And we have to understand What does that mean then? What does it mean uh, in Daniel? Where that Greek word semino was found, together with those others, it shows he's referring to Daniel too. This is what I mean by let Scripture interpret Scripture. How's Daniel going to interpret Revelation 1.1? You remember Daniel? There are certain questions I ask in my classes, and and, and if the students aren't sure... Uh, of the answers, I tell them at the beginning of the class their options. If you say one of the following, usually you'll be close. 
Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Temple, Garden of Eden, already and not yet eschatology. (laughs) And usually they'll be pretty close. And in this particular case, Daniel 2. And remember Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a big statue in four sections. And the four sections, each is explained to be a kingdom. The first, Babylon. The second, the Medes and the Persians. The third, Greece. And the fourth, an unimaginably fierce kingdom, which Jesus and early Judaism identified with Rome. A stone is cut without hands. It smashes the statue. And then it says that the stone grew and filled the whole earth. And then it says the kingdom is what the stone signified. The statue were the evil kingdoms of the world. And so, is this a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar? Does, is it literal? Does it have a one-to-one correspondence with history? In other words, is Daniel 2 talking about a kind of a sci-fi statue that's going to come to life and kind of march through New York City like Godzilla did? And Is, is that what this is about? Is, is it a sci-fi deal? Of course not. It's already been explained to be figurative. And so the context of Daniel 2 is a symbolic communication. So even the word, notice... Our word show here, you see that second word, or the, actually the third word up there? Whenever that word, that Greek word is used in the book of Revelation, it introduces a symbolic vision. Chapter 17 and verse 1, I will show you the harlot sitting on the waters. Is she sitting in an apocalyptic inner tube, some huge inner tube or something? I mean, is this a literal? Of course not. This is a symbol. And in chapter 21, 9 through 10, it says, I will show you the city. Well, this is no regular city. This is clearly uh, an image. It is a symbol. And there are other symbolic uses of this. And so, especially because of Daniel 2, John has that in mind. He's carrying that wording over. And he's saying, you know, just as Daniel, just as God communicated a symbolic vision to Daniel, so... This is a symbolic vision. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things which must surely take place, he sent and he symbolized it. He signified it by his angel. Now, the typical futurist perspective, as I said, the literal perspective, popular in many, many churches throughout the states and and, and overseas and, and among some scholars, is interpret literally. Until, unless you're forced to interpret symbolically. Revelation 1 is turning that on its head. It's saying, interpret symbolically until you're forced to interpret literally. I had a student a few years ago that came up to me and he said, in my church, if you don't interpret the book of Revelation literally, then you're a liberal. And I said, because I interpret Revelation 1-1 literally to say the whole book is symbolic, I take the book symbolically because I take verse 1 literally. It's literally saying the book is going to be symbolic. (laughs) So I think probably a better way to put it is that the reader is to expect symbols. 
Not that everything is going to be symbolic, and you've got to do the hard work of interpretation to see what is symbolic and what isn't. But the majority in the visionary section from chapters 4 through uh, chapter 22-5 is going to be symbolic for the most part. But how should we interpret those symbols? We could spend a long time on that here. I just say that sometimes they're interpreted for us. You remember the seven stars in chapter 1? There's said to be seven angels, seven lampstands, seven churches. The bowls of incense in Revelation 5, 8, the prayers of the saints. The great dragon in chapter 12 and verse 9, Satan. The saints' fine linen, bright and clean, is the righteous acts of the saints in chapter 19, verse 8. But commentators would not be writing very big commentaries on Revelation if every one of the symbols were defined. The ones I just mentioned are about the only ones. And they're billions. Well, that's a figure. Uh, I meant it symbolically. There are many, 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 many uh, symbols in the book of Revelation. And so how do we understand them? You want to know one of the best ways to understand them? Almost every one of them, if you look in the margin of your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible with margins, get one. If you're not sure how, talk to me or the pastors. You've got to have Bibles with margins. It's one of the most important things. Almost every symbol is an Old Testament illusion. You go back to the Old Testament, get the idea as much as you can, carry it over, and that goes a long way to interpreting the passage. You may not do it all, but it goes a long way. That's what I mean by Scripture interprets Scripture. And Daniel 2 interprets Revelation 1.1, a symbolic communication of Nebuchadnezzar, and John is universalizing that to his whole book. It's symbolic. Even the numbers... The first number, first shot out of the bag in Revelation 1-4, that this letter is from uh, uh, the Father and Jesus Christ. And the seven spirits before the throne. Are we talking about seven holy spirits? Are these seven angels? Of course not. This is a Trinitarian formula. Father, Son, seven spirits. The Spirit in its fullness. You see, if you try to pick it apart like seven petals, you're going to go awry. So the main mode of communication in Revelation is that of symbolism. We should interpret Revelation primarily in a symbolic fashion and not primarily in a literal fashion, especially when we're interpreting those images in chapters 4 through 22, 5. So hopefully you'll you'll reflect on this. It'll change the way you read the book of Revelation. But now what I want to ask in the remainder of the time is a very tough question. Why? Why does Revelation have more symbols in it than any other book? Now, there are symbols. Jesus spoke in parables quite a bit. We'll see that. But Revelation's immersed with it. It's dripping with it in a way that no other book is. Why is that the main mode of communication? Well, certainly uh, the visions are in continuity with the Old Testament. You can see some of the visions. They're illusions, and you can see that some of the visions have been shaped by the Old Testament. God wants to get readers to see that what John is seeing is related to the Old Testament. So there's going to be some continuity. Also, it may be that some of these visions are so hard to describe, John, to to put into propositional speech, that John just describes what he sees. They're so hard to try to uh, explain. Some have said, well, maybe the symbols 
make the student of the Word of God dig much deeper. It forces them to do that. Well, that's for sure. But I don't think any of those are the main reasons that we have symbolism in the book of Revelation. Why? Why? John is a prophet. Notice verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. This is a prophecy. John is a prophet. So, what we need to see is how the prophets use symbolism and how Jesus used symbolism. And then ask ourselves, is Revelation using symbolism for the same reason? And we're going to see, indeed, it is. I'm not going to go to the Old Testament for a while and look at Jesus for a while for nothing. I think there is a connection. And again, Scripture interprets Scripture. The Old Testament and the way Jesus used symbols is going to help us understand the use of scriptural symbols in the book of Revelation. So let's look at the Old Testament prophets and Jesus. They predominantly use symbolism in one particular situation, in response to one situation. The prophets living toward the end of Israel's history had the primary role of warning Israel to repent or she would be judged. By the time of the ministries of such people as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, their message was that judgment was coming because they had not repented. She could be delivered from it if you repented on an individual salvific level. But as a corporate, being a part of corporate Israel, you would, you would go into captivity, even if you're a believer. Now, these prophets delivered their warnings in very rational very sermonic form, appealing to past history, saying, look what your fathers did, learn from it. Don't make the same mistakes. They tried to convict their audience of sin and their self-serving moral permissiveness, but they had little positive effect because of the audience's spiritual anesthesia. They'd become anesthetized because of their habitual avoidance to change their comfortable, sinful lifestyle. Their hearts had become hardened to rational, historical, and sermonic warning methods. So, in the midst of this, the prophets take up forms of warning, which might gain them a better hearing or better attention. They use symbolic actions, symbolic parables, But such a change in warning form is effective only with the faithful remnant. With those who have ears to hear and hear not and have become hard-hearted, symbolic language and parables cause them to misunderstand further. We'll see that in just a moment. When the prophets used symbolic parables, it was already a sign that judgment was on the way, that the mass of Israel were going to be judged, and only a remnant would be saying it was like raising a flag. Parables means judgment has come. It's not like I'm going to give you a pictorial illustration so you can understand more. No, the parables drove them further, the majority of them, into misunderstanding. They had become intractable in their sin. For generations, God had sent prophets to tell them to repent, and they weren't. And so the beginning of the judgment is to cause them now to misunderstand. 
So for hardened unbelievers, the literary form of symbolic parable appears whenever ordinary warnings are no longer heeded. No warning will ever be heeded by those so far disobeying. But the believing remnant can be shocked back into the reality of their faith. Now this is the point of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Look at this passage. He says, Then I heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Do you see that? That's a command. That's amazing. Can you imagine if your pastor got up in the pulpit and said, Listen, but I command you not to perceive. Keep looking, but do not understand. Can you imagine if the pastor said, I'm going to read the scripture, don't understand it. That's what's going on here. That's why it's judgment, you see. Now, this is even worse. Make the hearts of this people insensitive. Isaiah's preaching is to make their hearts insensitive, not tender to repent. This is a tough passage. Make their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So it's to keep them from repenting, in fact. And I said, how long, Lord? And the passage goes on and talks about judgment. They're going to go into exile. And even when they return, verses 12 and 13, they're going to come back as sinners. Now, Isaiah's preaching is intended as a judgment to blind and deafen the majority in Israel and to have a positive effect only with the remnant, as we'll see. Now, what's interesting is, after this statement, they have ears but cause them not to hear. After that statement, you get parables. That's interesting. After the statement that Isaiah's commanded them not to hear, not to understand, then we get a parable. For example, in chapter 7 of Isaiah, and in verse 3, it says that one of Isaiah's children was named a remnant shall return. Now, you know, we sometimes know of Christian families, they get a little carried away. They name their children weird biblical names. Say, oh gosh, a poor kid, you know. But when little remnant will return, is late for dinner, his mom says, little, little remnant will return, come home. And most of the people say, golly, Isaiah, you know, well, stupid. And uh, name a kid that. But those with ears to hear and eyes to see will say, you know, Isaiah's a prophet. And that little kid... His name represents what's going to happen to us. We're going to go into exile, and then a remnant will return. Later in chapter 8, he refers to another son in verses 3 and 18. His name is even worse, swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. He's late for dinner. Swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. Come home. And again, people say, oh, gosh, Isaiah, I hope he doesn't have any more children. Can't take any more names. But those with ears to hear and eyes to see can see that this is a parabolic name for this kid. Israel's going to be swift, swift booty for Babylon. In chapter 20, 
verses 2 to 6, it says that Isaiah walked around, I'm sure you've seen this passage, he walked around nude for some years. And uh, a three-year period, in fact. Now, there's some debate, did he have a loincloth or not? It's not clear. Whatever it was, it was pretty embarrassing. And he walked around. Why did he do that? It was to show that Israel, who had sought refuge in Egypt, that Egypt was going to go bare and naked into exile, and those trusting in Egypt, like Israel, would go bare and naked into exile as well. He was a walking parable. Now, it's a unique redemptive historical situation. I don't encourage our pastors to do that. (laughs) Not sure how long their job would last, but at any rate. And sometimes these prophets got thrown in jail. So Ezekiel digs through part of a wall in Jerusalem in Ezekiel 12. Packs up all his belongings, puts them on his shoulder, crawls through a hole he dug before the eyes of all the Israelite onlookers. Why? Some thought... What an idiot. But others who had eyes to see and ears to hear realized he represents us. We're going to have to get our baggage, whatever we can, and we're going to have to go into exile through holes in the walls that have been pierced through and destroyed by the Babylonians. Listen to what introduces that acted out parable. God tells Ezekiel in chapter 12 and verse 2, You live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. And then you get parables. So you're beginning beginning to get a pattern. They have eyes to see but they, they don't understand. They have ears but they can't hear. Then you get parables. And the parables make them not see. It makes them not understand, you see. So the prophet's parables have a shock effect for genuine believers who become anesthetized because of living among other unspiritual people. The parables are intended to have a jolting effect on the remnant who become complacent along with a compromising majority. Israel did not want to hear the truth, and when it was presented straightforwardly to convict them of sin, they would not accept the fact of their sin. The parables function to awake However, those who really were believers, the small remnant in Israel. This pattern is found in Isaiah. It's found in Ezekiel. Listen to Ezekiel 3.27. He who hears, let him hear. And then guess what follows? The first parable in Ezekiel. God says, get a brick. Make a little model of Jerusalem. Get a brick. Conduct siege works against it. This was nothing but a picture of what Babylon was going to do to Israel. They were going to come against the city, bring siege works against it, overcome the city. So you get, they have ears but can't hear. Then the parable, but make them not hear. See the principle? Pattern? So, the parables of the prophets serve to judge intractably unrepentant people, but shock the faithful out of their spiritually non-lethargic condition. You say, well, where is the remnant in all this? Well, for example, you can read the end of chapter 14 of Ezekiel. It talks about a remnant uh, who persevere in the midst of this judgment. Now, this is the primary reason. Let's go to Jesus. This is why he spoke in parables. 
to understand his parables, you've got to understand the prophet's parables. And he's the prophet par excellence. Okay. Notice how chapter 13 begins. He who has ears, let him hear. We've heard that one. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. The disciples represent the remnant that's faithful. The majority are those who are not believing. So they ask, Why are you speaking in parables? He's beginning to give his answer here. Whoever has, to him shall more be given, the remnant faithful. And he who shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see. While hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. He speaks in parables in order that they would not understand. He is a latter-day Isaiah. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you'll keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and he quotes the rest of Isaiah. Then to the remnant, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not, and hear what you hear and did not, hear then the parable of the sword. And he starts, all of a sudden, he gives all these parables after he talks about the majority not being able to hear not being able to see, gives parables that further confounds the understanding of the majority. But the disciples who represent the remnant faithful, they understand. So Jesus, like the prophets, was rational in his delivery, preached, peeled to past history, but he gave parables. He was raising a flag, and it was a definitive flag, because this time... Israel would come to its end. Now, it's interesting that in Mark 8, Jesus applies the Isaiah 6 language to the remnant itself. Everywhere else in Scripture where Jesus uses it, and in in, in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it's always applied to unbelievers. Hearing but not hearing. Seeing but not understanding. Listen to Mark 8, beginning verse 16. All the way through 21, Jesus is asking them questions. He's, he's been talking about a parable, and he says, Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? He's speaking to the disciples. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? Notice he's not saying, he's not applying this to them indicatively. You don't understand. You don't see. You don't hear. He's asking questions. And I think the point is, Slowly but surely, they're coming out of that anesthetized lump that they have been a part of. Slowly but surely, they're coming out of it. And the more they trust in Jesus, the more they'll come out of it. With those who have ears to hear and hear not and have become irretrievably hard-hearted, however, symbolic language and parables cause them to misunderstand further. Above all, as with the prophets of old, Jesus' parables were a sign then that judgment had come upon the majority. Israel's being rejected as God's people. So symbolic parable enlightens the believer through shock, but hardens the unbeliever. Now it's significant to observe that pattern. You have a hearing formula. They hear, they have ears, but they can't hear. And then the parables. 
that caused them not to hear, except for the remnant faithful. By the time, now we're coming to the book of Revelation. How does this help us understand that book? And, and this, is, this is tough. By the time Revelation's written, John stands at the end of Israel's existence. As a nation, they rejected Christ as warnings of judgment. But how does this help us understand Revelation's visions? Do you remember at the end of each of the seven letters, there's a particular phrase just repeated again and again and again. Anybody remember what it is? I'll give you a penny if you can guess it. I don't give out big books. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess where that comes from? He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus said it at the beginning and the end of his parables in Matthew 13. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 3. We saw that. And ultimately rooted in Isaiah and the other passages. It sucks up the prophets in Jesus. It's now, however, addressing the faithful remnant. He who has an ear, let him hear. And focusing on those that don't have ears, those who don't hear, they don't have ears. And they're going to be judged. These these parables in the book of Revelation will only confuse them. So, by the way, we have it seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear. He has an ear, let him hear. Seven times. What happens after that? Chapter 4, 1 to 22, 5 are parables. Same pattern that we found with Jesus. He has an ear, let him hear. In parables. With the prophets. Israel has ears, but they can't hear. Parables. Same pattern. Jesus is continuing to communicate symbolically parables from heaven now through John, and they have the same purpose. And very, very what's tragic. Uh, The church has been in existence right after Jesus rises and ascends. We're now at the end of the century, probably 95 AD, and the church has become almost as unbelieving as Israel. Why would I say that? Well, it would make sense, but that's why we get so many parables now. But do you remember the pattern of the churches? The first Ephesus, the last Laodicea, they're about to lose their identity. I'm going to remove your lampstand, I'm going to spew you out. And then the middle three churches, they're the worst. Well, not the worst. They're not far behind the worst of Laodicea and of Ephesus. And the middle verse, right in the middle of that, chapter 2 and verse 23 says this. It's amazing. Middle verse of the letters, which points out the judgment element. I'll kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. This is a very sober thing that we're dealing with here. I took, it took me eight years to write a commentary on Revelation. Remember my daughter turned eight, one of my daughters at that time. And toward the end of writing that, I realized that the judgments in Revelation that are pictured so horribly... 
Yes, therefore, unbelievers outside the church and those who persecute the church, they're also intended for those in the church who are compromisers and pseudo-believers, like the Pharisees were. The same thing happened in Israel. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, that were not believers and would receive judgment. And this is not just revelation. You remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.15? All in Asia have deserted me. Oh my gosh. It's not exactly a post-millennial text, if you know what post-millennialism is, that the church is going to get better and better and better until the majority of people believe. It certainly didn't happen in the first century. So in the covenant community, there are those who or pseudo, and those, the remnant who isn't. So the reason that the prophets, Jesus and John, you assemble so that, so that Israel and the church as end-time Israel should perceive spiritual reality and not merely listen to abstractions about it. So we can make the following deduction, which forms really our next major section. And really it's, it's the major idea. Revelation symbols either sedate us spiritually or shock us into the reality of our faith. When you come to the Scriptures, come asking God to change you. Acts 7 says that Moses delivered living oracles. God's Word is living and it can transform us. Believe that. Trust in that. It's very easy to read it in a very rote way. Some of the Pharisees prayed. And to be sedated by it. The word parable actually means comparison or application. People are to look at the picture and then apply it to their lives. This can cause us to look at the truth and reality in a different way in order that we can be shocked back into the reality of our faith. And by the way, if you've studied much about metaphor or symbolism, it works on your mind, but it also works emotively. So we look at these pictures, it's to affect us, not just intellectually, but also emotively. This is what happened when David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband Uriah. The shock effect of the parable on the unbelieving yet sinfully complacent king is a phenomenon observable in David's life. Remember when Nathan the prophet went and said, King, I have a report. It was a rich man. He had a lot of sheep. There was a poor man in the same town. He had just one ewe lamb. Rich man had a visitor. He took the poor man's ewe lamb and uh, slayed it so that they could have it for dinner. What do you think we should do, David? David said, kill him. And he said, well, at least let him make restitution. It was going to be a severe judgment. Anybody remember what Nathan said to David? David took him literally, you see. But it was a parable. And when Nathan says, you're the man, David crumbled in repentance. He he was part of the remnant, even though he had committed such atrocities. The symbolic story catches him off guard, causes him to, he first focuses objectively on the meaning of of the story, which is a parable. And then he gets his emotions involved, invested in it. And then Nathan says, you're the man. So we need to look at these parables. See what they mean. Understand them and then say, hear God say, you're the man. Because none of us are without sin. 
What are some areas of our life to which we're spiritually insensitive? Now, we have extreme poverty in parts of the United States, and you can hear about it and say, isn't that awful? But, you know, I think if we saw pictures of it, it probably would motivate us to more action. And I do know that there are churches that actually do take action and send youth groups and special groups to very poor parts of this country. It's like Germany in World War II. Many of the people knew about the concentration camps, but they did not see many of them what went on. If they had, perhaps they would have taken some action, even if it would have meant their own lives. What are some areas of our lives that we're comfortable with in our sin? Is it a wrong relationship? Maybe what some call a dating relationship where uh, the, the couple is focusing just on the physical Maybe on the personality, but the spiritual commitment doesn't even come into view. And yet they're Christians. They say they are. That is being comfortable with sin. Or a married couple. They have a wonderful physical relationship, perhaps. Really like each other's personalities, but faithfully go to church, but they don't really read Scripture much around the house with one another or with their family. Some may be so busy in their jobs that they rarely see their family, but hey, I've got to support the family. They never see their children or their mates. It's complacency and sin. Some pastors think, well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and that, and on Saturday night I'll prepare my sermon. And they end up giving pablum sometimes. Their congregations need the deep understanding of the Word of God to nourish them. Pastors who do that are complacent in what I would call pastoral sin. And it makes the church fertile soil from which false teaching can arise. Revelation symbols either sedate or shock us back into the reality of our relation with God. Will you and I be spiritually sedated or shocked? I want to give you an illustration of this in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 17. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent. And then it goes on to say that She will be judged. So Jezebel is teaching about it's okay to worship idols as a Christian. You say, how could anybody get away with that? Well, she may have been teaching because the chapter goes on and and, and talks about that this teaching involved the deep things of Satan. It may have been, hey, you Christians, you got to go into the pagan temples Go on and, and, and eat their feast. I mean, don't worship, but pray in your heart to God, not to their idol. But also, you got to go there because you got to see how the devil works because there are idols there and, the, and demons are behind the idols. So maybe that was the rationale. You see, it, it wasn't just, oh, go worship idols and that's okay. No, there probably was some rationalizing of how they could go and participate in, in those temples. And why would Christians want to do that? Because every trade had a trade union. That is a patron deity. And you had to go to that patron deity's temple to pay your dues, which meant to worship him. And so she was given a rationale. Hey, got to know the enemy to defeat him, so go on. By the way, you'll keep your job too. Well, 
What we find is that the elders were putting up with Jezebel because Jesus is condemning them here. They tolerated her teaching, it says. Now John wants to shock these sluggish Christians so they'll discern the gravity of the situation. Who is Jezebel? He wants to shock them. Get the elders off the rail, really get them to see the black and white reality, the true colors of Jezebel. And so in chapter 17, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made to drink with the wine of her immorality. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. But John wonders, what's going on here? You know what's interesting about this passage is that Babylon, throughout the rest of the passage, is depicted as guess who from the Old Testament? Jezebel. Babylon is painted like Jezebel. In fact, painted may be the right word because both Jezebel um, and Babylon had colored eyes and and adorned her head like a harlot. Revelation 17, 16 says that Jezebel's destiny will be just like or that Babylon's destiny will be just like it was with Jezebel of the Old Testament. They will eat the flesh of Jezebel, so they'll eat the flesh of Babylon, it says. And it says at the end of Revelation chapter 17 that Babylon's destruction will be according to the word of God, just as Jezebel's destruction was according to the word of God. And there are many other ways in which Jezebel of the Old Testament and Babylon here are the same. They both seduce people, they function as queens, they deceive people by sorceries, persecute and kill saints, and so on. Who is Babylon? Babylon is the entire corrupt economic, religious, and social system. That's what it is. And the apostate church overlaps with it. The pseudo part of the church overlaps with it. And so... As I said, John wants to shock the sluggish Christians in order that they will discern the severity of their situation. The angel's question, remember that question? John says, I wondered greatly. And the angel says, why do you wonder? Actually, that's another illusion. It goes back to Daniel 4. And in Daniel 4, the idea is amazement, but it's amazement of being appalled, shocked, and fearful. So we can pack into this amazement. It's not just... Why are you wondering? No, it's shock, being appalled, being amazed. Well, what's what's going on? Why was John shocked and appalled and amazed? Well, and, and, and fearful. He's just seen a nightmarish vision concerning the horrible nature of the beast and the woman. He's troubled. I think part of what 
is contributory to his shock, his fear, his being appalled, is that I want you to notice back up here. Look how she's dressed. Clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup. That language is the exact language that describes the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 21, verse 19, as well as being clothed in linen. It's not there, but Babylon later said to be clothed in linen, as is the bride of Christ. By the way, that language also, guess what it describes? It describes the high priest's clothing in the Old Testament. So John initially sees this woman. She doesn't look too good, but hey, you look like the bride of Christ. Whoa, you look like a priestly figure. And then yet he sees she's dripping with blood, persecuting saints. He's shocked. He's appalled. He's, there's a little dissonance going on here. And he says, why? Why are you confused about this? It's pretty clear who she is. She's a pseudo figure. Beast is full of blasphemous names. Cup in the woman's hands full of abomination, unclean things of her morality. So John, like the leaders in Thyatira with regard to Jezebel, may have been temporarily captivated by what appeared in part to be a spiritually attractive figure and was blinded to the full, true, ungodly nature of the harlot. In fact, as I mentioned already, part of the depiction of the Babylonian woman is taken from the Old Testament portrayal of Jezebel herself. Since Jezebel was the leader of or stood for a party of false teachers in Revelation chapter 2, the point here in chapter 17, by the time the readers get to it, is guess who you're entertaining in your church in chapter 2? It's this woman. Jezebel in chapter 2 is none other than Babylon the Great raising her head through a pseudo-believer who's nothing more than a worldly person, an unbeliever, and even worse, a false teacher. The world loves to come in and use religious language and act like the Bible can be taught through such religious language when in reality they deny the power of it. So the point in Revelation 2.20 is as long as the church of Thyatira allows Jezebel to teach such things within the confines of the church, the church itself is beginning to have spiritual intercourse with the devil's whore and with the devilish beast himself. Remember, Babylon was a whore. And with the beast himself, upon whose back the whore rides. She's the opposite, indeed, of the pure woman. In chapter 12 and chapter 21, who represents the pure people of God. John is saying to the Christians in Thyatira, Oh, you want to tolerate this teaching which you don't think is that bad? Well, if you do, you're dealing with the devil himself and you'll be destroyed. What they thought was insignificant compromise in sin was a crack in their spiritual dikes was going to open up a whole flood of sin and false teaching. They needed to be shocked like John was to the true deceptive and evil reality of the false teachers in their midst who in some ways could have seemed to be godly. 
as Babylon seemed to be priestly, like the bride of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John is saying to us that revelation symbols either sedate us spiritually or shock us into the reality of our faith. And if they sedate you, and if any portion of Scripture sedates you, get on your knees and cry to God to enliven you. Is there a sinful area in our lives that we don't think is that bad? Will we be sedated or shocked into the reality of it? Sometimes on the way to church, I see people jogging in the mornings. Many of these people probably don't go to church, unbelievers. Maybe among some of them, I don't know, I'm speculating, but among some of them, maybe there are some believers and maybe they've stopped going to church. They're comfortable. They're enjoying being healthy, staying healthy. They need to be shocked into the reality of their comfort with sin. They need to be shocked by God's Word. The reason that John then uses symbols is so that we should actually see and perceive spiritual reality and not merely listen to abstractions about it and accordingly be shocked concerning those sins about which we become anesthetized. So the book of Revelation, yes, it's a futurology. It is about the future, but it's also about the present. And there's much in it about the present. It's not just a futurology, it's a redemptive historical psychology of ourselves. It relates to us and to our lives. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you only heard about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that's one thing, sounds bad. Once you see the pictures, it's a totally different thing. It makes a huge impression. So do the pictures of the book of Revelation. It's the same in our spiritual lives. Sometimes we get so accustomed and comfortable with sinful situations, we need radical pictures presented to us to shock us about the sinful situations we're in. And by the way, not just the book of Revelation. It does this in an extreme way with its pictures. But all of Scripture has that function, shock treatment. Now, also, there are those among the remnant who, who may well be persevering. There always are, and they're, they're faithful. And so some of these visions will encourage them. Like the woman who represents the church in chapter 12, or the vision, the beautiful vision of the city of God in chapter 21.1 up through 22.5 in the Garden of Eden and the temple there. I remember some years ago, I made an appointment with a dental hygienist. I hadn't been in a long time. I was a little nervous about the whole thing. And so I went, and she did a little work on me and left me for a couple of minutes, and you couldn't miss what was on the wall. I was just, it was, I was staring at it. And it was the progression, different images of people's, the same person's gums, progressing from healthy to horrible, rotten gums. And so when she came back in, I said, where am I on this, this progression of pictures? She said, you're heading towards rotten gums. I said, why? My gums feel fine. She said, that's the genius of gum disease. It doesn't hurt until it's too late. And so also, we may not feel the spiritual hurt until significant harm has happened. We need the parabolic pictures of Revelation to shock us into the reality of our sin and spark us back into a healthy relationship with the Lord. I remember with the dental hygiene, she put the fear of God in me. So I, started, I, I flossed every day, I brushed twice, 
Uh, as a result, quite frankly, I get so bored with brushing my teeth, I read books while I'm brushing my teeth. So it's, been a, it's ultimately been a blessing. But at any rate... Revelation symbols either sedate us or shock us back into the reality of our relation with God. The phrase about Israel in unbelief, not hearing, from Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13 is turned, interestingly, positively by John to he who has an ear, let him hear. It's a message to the remnant. But those not hearing are undergoing or will undergo judgment. There's always a middle group who will nevertheless come out and they'll be converted and they'll come over. And, and uh, to the faithful remnant. Will you and I be sedated or shocked into the reality of what our relationship with God demands? Yes, it's shock treatment. But also for those who persevere, it's assurance and it's encouragement as well, as I've said. Revelation promises great blessing to those who hear and obey its message. Remember we read in chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. May God give us grace, so that if we have ears, we'll hear what his symbols are saying to us. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us a balance. We would see these images as depictions of our own complacency and sin as we saw with Jezebel in Babylon. Yet, Lord, cause us to repent, to be shocked. And Lord, we know that you afflict the comfortable by your symbols, but comfort the afflicted, Lord, who are persevering and are faithful by the wonderful images and even the images of judgment, for we know Jesus has taken our judgment. He's taken the punishment of sin upon himself and overcome it by resurrection from the dead, declaring himself to be the Lord God of heaven and earth, and him we serve. In Christ's name, amen. I told you it was going to be industrial strength. <laughs>